0: Hi, my name's Sam Breitgear and welcome to Brains Bite Back. In this podcast, we take a magnifying glass to everything related to psychology, technology, and our society. My guest today is an entrepreneur, podcast host, and venture capitalist. He is the founder of numerous startups, including his most recent endeavor, Zeotag, and has a deep understanding and interest in the modern uses of AI, Michael Pushkar. And for our Weird Wide Web piece, we have a story from MIT's Technology Review on news that Microsoft has created a tool to find paedophiles in online chat rooms. Hello, Michael. Would you be able to start off by telling our listeners a little bit about who you are and what you do? Sure, well, my name is Michael Pushkar. I'm an entrepreneur, uh, investor, technologist.
1: I would say I'm a technologist first. In the last 20, 25 years of my career, I've been studying artificial intelligence and semantic web technology, but I have a passion for creating startups. So uh, some of the projects that I've had recently sort of merged my two passions, both uh, creating startups, investing in startups, well, let's add a third one, and then the technology underneath.
0: And I'd love to get into like the, the startups that you've got into, but I know there's one that you really want to talk about. And to be honest, I really want to talk about it too, uh, Zeotag. So let's just jump right in. And yeah, if you could tell us what it does and how it works.
1: Yeah, I'm. Super excited to talk about <clears throat> Zeotag because it's a transformational product and I, I think I've built a lot of startups over the years, I've built some successful companies, but it's not every day that you could say you're working with a product that's truly transformational. Zeotag is going to change how we both create and consume video and, and all media content in, in reality. When you read a book or you buy a book, just think about a textbook or, or any book. Uh, It just had a 250 page book. You wouldn't buy or read a textbook without a table of contents. So why do we watch four to six hour videos without a table of contents? So that's precisely what Zeotag does. Zeotag, using artificial intelligence and semantic web technology, can take virtually any video or uh, audio, by the way, so including this very podcast. We should probably tag it. <laughs> and uh, take it and run it through our, our algorithm, and what comes out the other side is a beautiful table of contents, a chapter and sections uh, structure, so that uh, we call it an actionable table of contents because you can click on the individual chapters and sections and get right into the video, right into the part of the video that you wanna see.
0: Awesome, and I know that when we spoke about this before, for me, the first thing that sprung to mind was like education because like, I personally use YouTube and videos to educate myself in a few things. Uh, I've done yoga in the past. I've taught myself that. And also um, with limited uh, results, ukulele, at least attempted. And I think that that's the first thing that came to mind when when I heard about this, because so many times like you find certainly, maybe not so much with yoga, because it's a whole like thing which you you consistently flow through, but at the same time with like learning ukulele, certainly, there's always that like and subscribe or do this and that and I was like all right no I already know the chords can we just get to that and then you skip too far ahead and you're like wait what was the? so like for me this is like a, I think it's it's really cool to have this accuracy but I know you probably have like a hundred or thousands of use cases you can think of but what are the main ones that you really think like how do you see this really really having the greatest impact In what areas would you say?
1: Well, I think you nailed it. Uh, I think it's—it's a lot of it's in education, do-it-yourself videos, conference and events. I mean, I think all of us have had this experience. That was a great example with ukulele, but you think about woodworking, for example. So I want to build a hobby horse, or I want to cook a recipe, okay? I'm a big fan of pesto as an Italian, okay? So I want to learn how to make pesto, and I'm missing an ingredient. Well, I go and I type it into Google, and we're all driven to learn through video now. So I bring up the video and I'm really excited to learn what I, what I want to learn. And then I see it's a four hour video and you know, learn about our other videos, uh, the things I'm doing on this channel. And then we get into actual building of the hobby horse and my woodworking example. And you realize you're gonna have to watch an hour of this or at least forward around until to try to find it. So this problem solves exactly that. You get into what you want to see immediately and you get out. And, uh, yeah, the use case is, is an education and training. Uh, you think about it in the corporate world, or you can think about in, uh, in just our everyday lives. In the corporate world, it's, uh, it's you want your workers, you want your employees to be trained. You want them to, to, be, to have a great deal of knowledge uh, about what they need to do every day and what they're gonna be doing in the next five years. So with this, you really make their time efficient and you get them to do exactly what they, they need to be learning.
0: Nice. And where can people find this ZeoTag at the moment? What stage is it at? Where, where would they find it? Is it like available on YouTube? Well, so right now we're in closed beta. So uh, customers can, can go to zeotag.com
1: and uh, they can sign up. And if you're accepting into the closed beta, you can get a look at what we're doing. But we'll be out of closed beta very soon. We're already talking to some uh, very, fairly large companies. As I said, I, I think this is going to be a, a groundbreaking product. We're getting a, a, a lot of interest. I've been frankly, humbled and surprised. I knew, uh, I knew people would get it right away, and people would understand it, but uh, I've been overwhelmed by the amount of interest that we've been getting in it, so I'm really excited. So point your browser to zerotag.com and sign up and hopefully we'll get you access as quickly as possible.
0: I'm definitely down for trying it on this podcast. I think it'll be interesting, at least definitely this episode. So we'll have to work that out. But I know that like you said, to take it back a bit, you have worked on numerous startups and you're you're a veteran when it comes to this. Do you wanna tell us a little bit about your, your other startups?
1: Yeah, sure. And. Uh... It's, 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 it's interesting. So I came out of uh, school, and I went to work immediately for a big company, Lockheed Martin. And <clears throat> I was assigned to work for the CIA. I did some work for the government sector. And I just realized really quick, although it was really interesting work, and obviously um, I enjoyed it, it just, it just didn't, didn't do it for me because I couldn't see myself working at one company for 40 years. After that, I was lucky to find a job at a company called infonautics which was a groundbreaking company in the 90s and uh it was my first startup company and since then i had startup fever right so uh what, what i l- realized along the way and I, i'm sure maybe some of your listeners realize this too is when you work for another company the success really is out of your hands so i'm a technologist and i would build these great products for companies just just beautiful products that worked great and the companies would fail and i realized along the way that well i, I, I if i'm gonna fail if if i'm not gonna succeed I want that failure to be on me, not on somebody else. So in 2007, I launched my first company, which was called UC Pacific. It was a big data company. It was a very tech, big technology play. And uh, I had a lot of success with it. And that success, by the way, happened down here in Colombia. And I uh, grew up to about 150 people, and it was acquired within six years, five years. And that was my first success. And then, of course, after you have your, uh, your first success, you sort, of catch, you sort of catch fever for it. By the way, they haven't all been successes. So as an entrepreneur, you, you have to know that you're going to fail, right? But I've built a number of different companies, and they've all been based around technology. And uh, they've all had sort of a core technology component that have made them compelling one way or another to, uh, to various markets.
0: Awesome. I've got two questions from that. So for my first question, when you launched that first company, did you do that by yourself? And what, what was that process like? Did you have other people around you? How was your support network? And was that something that you fully took on it all the way it was on your shoulders? And my second question is, you said you've, you've gone through some failures. What have you learned from those failures?
1: Now, those are really good questions, and they're, they're really common questions. I, I think that uh, every entrepreneur needs a mentor. And, in fact, you know, sometimes I'm disappointed when I, when I meet other successful entrepreneurs and, and they, they're a bit <coughs> haughty in, uh, in how they interact with, with others. And, you know, for us to have been successful, almost all of us, we've had to have some help along the way. So my first venture, I, I founded it on my own. So um, that was great, because then when I had the exit, of course, I didn't have any investment. It was completely organically grown. But that's not to say that I built it on my own. I had an incredible executive management team. And I was fortunate enough, when I worked at my first startup, Infonautics, I worked under a guy whose name is Josh Copelman. He now runs First Round Capital. Previously, he, he built half.com and sold it to eBay. And I think what you do for me, okay, there's no formula, okay, but I, I think in your 20s, you really need to go and work for some smart people and, and learn from them and just be willing to listen and be willing to watch. And, uh, and then go off and build your own company once you see the, the, the space in the market where there's a, there's a market need. And don't be afraid to fail, okay? And what I learned from those failures was I was humbled, okay? I, went, I, came, I, I started UC Pacific. I had a big exit. And then I immediately started another company called Lex Paradigm. I had another exit. And I thought I was invincible. I thought I was invulnerable. I, I thought, you know, I could just walk into any industry, into any company, and, and create a company, and it would have a, be a great success. And so I start, tried to create a, a fashion startup after that, which is completely out of my space. Now, in my defense, I was sort of forced to do that because I had a non-compete after the other exit, So I couldn't actually work in technology. And I had startup fever, so I had to start something. But it was, a, it was an abysmal failure. I, I'm just not even going to sugarcoat it. And then I started another company called Betaply, which also wasn't very successful. And so what I learned from it was to be humble, that every startup requires a, a combination of a lot of hard work, a market need and some luck and uh and so uh going into this again and doing this again with oiga and doing it with zeotag now i think i've kind of realized that uh there's no uh, automatic formula for success it's just going to be a lot of hard work and being at the right place at the right time and and, and such i gotta say
0: i like the fact that um you mentioned you came down here to colombia to start your first startup very rarely do i get to actually sit with someone in person obviously it's an english-speaking podcast so that already like puts the potential guests down to a very, very small number. But I, I love it here. And I know you do too, I get that. And it, there's amazing things going on here. It really is a, a very exciting time to be in this city. But I also know you have experience in other startup scenes. Uh, so I'd love to hear about what your experience is in the US in what startup scenes you've worked in and um, how it compares to what you see here in Medellin in the modern day.
1: Well, I owe a lot to Colombia. I'm gonna be honest in it, it's a great place to live. Obviously, we, we love being here. We, we love the weather. We, we love everything about it. We love the culture. But I wasn't a successful businessman or, or entrepreneur until I arrived in Colombia, honestly. And I had a, this company, UC Pacific, I actually started it when I was in Philadelphia. I had a 15 to 20 person team in China, I had four or five employees in Philadelphia. But it wasn't until I was invited to come down here that I really had my success. And Colombia has a lot of unique assets that make it very appealing for entrepreneurs. Okay, when you get funded, uh, usually you get funded with friends and family money, right? Maybe three, four hundred thousand dollars. Well, I'll tell you in New York, three or four hundred thousand dollars won't last three months, okay? If that, but here in Colombia, because the uh, you have the great you have a great combination of, of very smart people, very hardworking people. Standard work week right here is forty-five hours a week. They're entrepreneurs, they're natural entrepreneurs. I, I think it's something I always like to say it's something about the mountains here, something about them having to had to conquer the mountains. And when I, we're talking specifically about Medellin now, not about Colombia. But then you have the very low cost of living. So with some of the customers that I've had at Oiga, because we work with a lot of startups, you know, they, they get funded with three or four 400000 dollars where they'd only have be able to have one or two people in New York for only a few months. Here they can have seven to ten people for six months. So you can advance a lot quicker. The other thing I think it's important to mention is, I really believe that Medellin has become the central artery of technology for all of Latin America. It's never gonna compete against Silicon Valley and people who try to hold it to that standard are being very unfair. Okay, but here you, uh, you have a government and uh, you have the spirit of entrepreneurship and you have the government that's willing to invest in it. And then because of, it's such a beautiful place to be, it attracts foreign entrepreneurs. So I'll tell you on the Zeotag team, you know, we have our development operations here in Colombia. But we have uh, one member of the team is from Cuba. One member is from El Salvador. One member is from uh, Morocco. Uh, I'm missing someone, I'm sorry. But, they, <laughs> but it just has an international appeal, so people just want to be here. So, uh, so there's that benefit, too. For attracting talent, you not only have at your disposal the local talent, but you have all of these foreigners who are here who, uh, who come here, they, they love it here, and they're just looking for something great and fun to do. And you know if you can give them something impactful, something that is really a game changer, that is changing the world, then they'll sign up.
0: No, I feel that. And I got to say, I'm, I'm one of those foreigners that arrived here and I was like, yeah, I want to stay here. I want to find something cool. Fortunately, I got in and um, now I'm doing this podcast and I love it. And I'm so grateful for that. But it's, it's definitely, it's it's I'm just fortunate in the sense that I've stumbled across this, this gold mine of great weather, great people and really good opportunities at this moment in time, because God knows it wasn't like this like 20, 30 years ago. And it's sad that it's still people have this perception that it's still like that but for now it seems like it's well it's losing it's like kind of like secret kind of like vibe of being a a great place but it's uh it's it's good it's getting better and um yeah i love it here you're an expert when it comes to ai i think i can say that (laughs) i'd really love to hear what you're looking forward to in ai so like zeotag aside like what other things you're looking forward to seeing develop from ai technology
1: So artificial intelligence, it's become sort of a buzzword, right? And it's become all-encompassing. It means a lot of different things. Uh, Now it's even come to mean things that it shouldn't even mean, uh, right? Uh, So I'll give you my spiel on AI really quickly. So 20 years ago, a lot of the AI algorithms that we're we're using right now, they were developed 20 years ago. So I have two patents. Those patents were filed in 1999 and I think 2000. So, So what changed? Right? Well, two things changed. We, the, the advent of cloud computing and just massive computing power at our disposal. And then this explosion of content. And Zeotag is a great example. You now, one of the things we're doing on Zeotag is we're doing this speaker diarization algorithm where, just like in Facebook, where you could tag people's faces, in Zeotag you can tag voices. So we're gonna have a database of people's voice profiles. I mean, this is, this is amazing. I mean, if you think in China, how cameras are ubiquitous and how they're storing that video, it's incredible just to, you know, just to, to the amount of explosion of contents out there. So that's why the advent of, uh, that's, what, that's been the advent of AI. That's why we're all talking about it now. Now, looking forward, uh, a good friend of mine, his name's Debo, he, uh, he's a, one of the founders of Google. He, he often says that 30% of jobs are gonna be gone in 30 years. I think it's a conservative number. I think that it could be 40 percent, and people talk about that loss of jobs and what's that's going to what that's going to mean. I prefer to look at the businesses. So if you're a business, how does that impact your business? It means if you're not adapting AI technology right now, then your business is it's an existential threat to your actual business. So you need to be you need to be looking at this technology. Yes, it's going to completely change. Uh, it's going to be like the industrial revolution, right? When when a lot of farmers ended up going into the cities and, and becoming re-educated and working. Um, it wasn't exactly pretty, right? There was a lot of hardship that came out of that. But what came out of the other end, obviously, is something that's better for society. So I think uh, we're going to see an enormous paradigm shift. And I know that that sounds like hyperbole, but uh, it's not. I, I think we're going to see a huge paradigm shift in the next, not just 30 years, but I'm going to say 10 years. Uh, the world's going to change. And uh, you know, I'm putting my futurist hat here right now. but. I just think that uh that businesses who aren't adapting to this might not be around the next 10 years
0: no i completely agree and it's going to be an interesting time because like you said slowly like it probably will be like 40 percent or something like that and then when that happens like what are we going to do i actually hosted a a previous podcast on and it's like one of our most popular by far um and it's one of our longest as well just because there's so much to talk about and it was on ubi and ai and we had an ex-nasa engineer come on the show along with um james felton keith who's running for us congress and he's an economist and we discussed at length like what's going to happen when ubi is like potentially like the only solution we have because no one can do jobs but we also like get money from like all the robots (laughs) or the ai or i i can't wait to see how it comes out i almost want to like skip to the end and just be like (laughs) what happens what happens but um I'm, uh, hopefully we'll see it anyway in our lifetimes. It will be interesting, scary, but interesting and exciting. So you, you saw um, our Weird Wide Web story today, which is on like uh, Microsoft and it has like new, um, a new AI system which can like, identify like pedophiles grooming children in chat rooms. But it was really interesting to hear what you said about that your work previously working on a similar technology to counter-terrorism when it was was it for the FBI that you said?
1: another three letter organization well, <laughs> I have to be I have to be a little bit careful with that. I did sign some contracts and <laughs> such that, but uh, but yeah, no it's it's really interesting so. Uh, when, you, when you speak about things, the traditional way to find out what someone's talking about is full text search, right? And that's what we do with Google. We type uh, a phrase in, whether it's astronomy or, you know, Jupiter, or it could be, uh, in this case, what we were talking about is when a terrorist wants to build a dirty bomb. Well, you know, the CIA, obviously, they're monitoring communications, the NSA, they, they want to see if uh, someone is talking about that. But Terrorists are smart, so they're not just going to say, hey guys, let's get together at noon and build a dirty bomb. So they, they try to avoid talking about the the actual, using the actual words in a sentence. You can do it with natural language processing, and and, and this is technology that, again, that's you know, 10 years old, but now with computing power, it's become almost uh, almost commodity. Uh, but you can start to do this contextualization of content. And by the way, very similar technology we're using in Zeotech to be able to form the Table of Contents, right? You. Listen to what people are talking about and you, you know, if you're talking about building a dirty bomb and you don't use the words, there's still a number of things that you need to do. So you need to go out, and you need to gather the radioactive materials, you need the uh, explosion components. So let just say there's five or six things. So we know, if, you're, if we run a classification algorithm and we know that you're talking about four or five of those things, that we can be pretty certain that you're talking about building a dirty bomb, right? And so it's the same thing with this uh, example that you're going to get with Microsoft. It's the same thing with Zeotag. You actually don't have to mention the words that, of the topic for us to know what you're speaking about. And of course, now you have these learning systems that make it even better. So with the, the algorithms around natural language, you can detect that. And then what we do is we, uh, we use, natural, we use uh, machine learning and neural networks to correct to correct and punish the machine when it makes an incorrect assumption and reward it when it makes a positive assumption. You don't want to correct it too much because, you know, they might remember in 10 years. <laughs> but uh, no, I'm just, I'm just kidding, of course. But uh, the truth is that with machine learning, it just becomes more and more precise and accurate.
0: No, Awesome. Now this, I got to admit, I love this topic and I love all things to do with psychology and technology, but ever since you mentioned it before our chat, this has <laughs> been at the back of my mind and basically I've been building up to this. So I really want to know, you told me you're in a plane crash in 2013. I, I've never met anyone that's been in a plane crash, so I think this is the, the first time I'm going to hear a story like this. Yeah, I'd be interested to know like, how what, what happened and what the hell was running through your head when that happened. Yeah,
1: okay, well, yeah, I've told this story so many times, it's obviously something that happened in my life, that's something that I'll never forget. I, I prefer to, th- to think of it this way. What are the chances of having two plane crashes in your lifetime? People ask me, do you, do you, do you get, are you afraid to, to get on planes? And I say, well, no. What are the chances that I'll be on a second plane that crashes? crisis? So uh, probability there. But, so it was on a flight from Madrid to uh, Rome, and I was uh, planning to go to Catania. I have some family in, in Sicily. And we were flying, and we, we were coming down to, to land, and at the last minute, we pulled back up. And, you know, everybody on the plane thought that was kind of strange. We so started looking around and we started going into a pattern of doing circles around the airport. And eventually I could see that people were agitated, like the pilot came out. He was talking to the crew. They were upset, like their eyes were big. Um, some of them were sobbing. So we knew something was going on. Uh, then the pilot came out and they, he put one leg on one side of the aisle, one leg the other, stood up. And it, he, he said it in Italian and luckily I speak Italian clapped his hands loud and said, listen, everybody listen up. We've got problems with the plane. Okay, and immediately there were screams, right? Uh, We, our landing gear won't come out and we've lost one of our engines. And I mean, it was just panic. It was bedlam. I I don't know how else to say it. You could hardly hear the rest of what he said over people screaming. uh, But he said, but the next thing he said was even worse. He said, we're gonna have to crash land the plane. So it was interesting because uh, in that moment, you're on a plane. You don't have self service you don't have wi- service, wi-fi service you think it's pro- you think you're going to die okay you think you're going to die and you have a few minutes to think about your life as that plane is going down because you know it's going to crash and there's no one you can tell you know i immediately thought about my daughter and how i'd love to just like send her a message so i did something really interesting of which uh, cost me a lot of flack on the internet if you, if you go- actually google in my name you won't find anything about the company like, you might find some things about the companies are created but this is actually one of the first things that you'll find what I did was I decided I was going to record it. Well, if I was going to die, I, I might as well record the plane crash. So uh, they said, so they, what the, the instructions they gave to us was put your head between your legs. Put your arms over your head. Um, make sure you have all objects stowed. And when we're going to announce brace for impact. When we say brace for impact, that means we hit the ground. Immediately when we hit the ground, fire and rescue crews are going to come in and try to get us out. So the uh, plane started going down and I was recording. And uh, they shut off all the lights, so the recording isn't very interesting, more for the sound. And we hit the runway. So when, as we were going down, I could see the runway was covered in white. I, I thought maybe it was snowing in Rome, although it was uh, a month where it shouldn't have been snowing. But it turned out what they did is they coated it with, with a foam, I guess, so that there wouldn't be a fire. Because there's no landing gear, uh, so when it hits, it would, uh, it would immediately have sparked a fire on the belly of the plane. And believe me, you felt it. So when we hit the ground, there was this enormous, and horrible screeching sound. Anybody who's been in a car accident knows what that sounds like, but you can imagine that times like five. And then uh, it lost control of the pain, and it started to spin. And it went around in circles, and then one of the planes broke. One of the wings broke off, and it went over on its side. And, uh, and there it lay, but we were alive. Now, there were some serious injuries on the plane. Uh, a lot of people were being um, um, carried out on stretchers and such, but not... I don't know, 15 seconds after the plane crashed, the doors were being ripped open by, by firemen, and they came in, they took us out. Leave everything you have on the plane, just get out. I got to go down the slide, you know, the one <laughs> that they always, they always show you. I got go to go down the slide. I filled myself going down the slide. And so what I did was I sent that uh, video to the uh, UK Telegraph, and they immediately ran a story about it, which is, like I said, one of the first stories that comes out if you Google on my name. But I got a lot of flack. Yeah. Why were you filming? That was dangerous. You shouldn't have been doing that. But, you know, I just felt like... I was either gonna die or I wasn't. And if I was gonna survive, heck, I would've uh, filmed. <laughs> but it was a hiring experience. And then after I got off the plane, and after I walked away, I, I cried, and then I just screamed. I just screamed, like, I'm alive. I mean, it's just, a, I don't know how to even describe that. And uh, it changed my wife, life in a lot of ways, because I just realized that in any moment in time, I could just be gone. And it could be on a plane, or it could be a heart attack on the street, whatever it is and um it makes you change how you think about your
0: life and what happened with the airline did they did they like compensate you or did they do anything or was that, i mean that seems like a pretty traumatic experience did they even offer you like counsel or what what was their response
1: yeah there were people waiting for us they made us go into a, a special room uh, they brought out pizza it's Rome after all and we uh we sat there for about six hours that was uh that was tough and they brought out yeah counselors and they brought up medical teams they wanted to make sure everybody was okay again the people who were more seriously injured but nobody nobody died in in the uh, crash which is amazing and um they but there was no compensation uh they they did pay me uh, No, i take that back they they gave us funds because i lost all my luggage so i had needed clothes so uh, they gave us funds to go out so shopping in in rome isn't the worst thing in the world right <laughs> but uh other than that no and then um the next day i was on a flight to catania and continued my journey
0: that's brave. But like you said, statistically speaking, you're pretty much safe from uh, from flights. Although it's crazy. It's so weird to sit with someone that um, that's had this experience only because my dad is a flight attendant. So every day he's a flight attendant in the US and every day he's on flights, multiple flights, like probably he he's right. flown so many times. And he tells me stories about this, but like because like he flies so frequently and he's told me stories about other people that he knows it's kind of one of those things that it reinforces my like security and like in in airlines where it's just like well if he does it all the time i'm right. like i'm all right but like to meet someone that it's not even like your job it's not you it just happens to you on the flight that's crazy man um oh, this has been awesome this has been really fun i i, I love all these stories and it's been great to speak to someone not only about like uh, technology but also that kind of like we're a tech psychology podcast so to speak about technology and then to have like oh by the way here's this uh near-death experience and here here's this how this is impacted my psychology that's like there's i i couldn't ask for more on this show thank you so much michael
1: yeah thank you for being here anytime you'd like to have me on i'm happy to be here
0: weird wide web According to MIT Technology Review, Microsoft has created an automated system to detect sexual predators trying to groom children online. The tool, codenamed Project Artemis, works by looking for common patterns of communication that are known to be used by predators that target children. If a pattern is detected, the system will flag the conversation so it can be reviewed by a human moderator, who then determines whether to inform the police companies implementing the technique can set a score, for example, 8 out of 10, above which any flagged conversations are sent to a human moderator to review. The moderators could then potentially identify imminent threats and report them to law enforcement. That's it for our show today, but as always, you can find all our shows and more at sociable.co. You can also subscribe to our newsletter to stay up to date and receive great articles and this podcast every Friday in your inbox. Just go to sociable.co, scroll down to the right hand side and add your name and your email address. You can also follow us on YouTube or on Spotify and iTunes and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Thanks and until next time, take care.